to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Today's news stories are really interesting and also surprising. For example, last week, the head of Iran's elite Al-Quds force met with the heads of Iraq's Shia militias in a secret meeting that our mainstream media didn't cover. Then, later in the week, these militias began massing their forces on the Iraqi border with Syria, as well as on the Iraqi border with Jordan. Didn't hear much about that either. In fact, the mainstream media didn't cover it. Of course, what they missed was a surprising and historically groundbreaking event that took place between the region's newest military allies. Then there were the Israeli elections and the stalemate that followed. Is history repeating itself or isn't it? And then finally, the president has once again been accused of another heinous crime by an unidentified whistleblower in an anonymous complaint. What's new? But the most outrageous attack against the president came from a fellow Republican. That's the beginning of our lineup today, so let's get on with it. Welcome to the News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is the Friedman Report. Well, last week, Major General Qasem Soleimani, who is the head of Al-Quds, or the Quds Force, that's the elite unit of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is also an elite unit. So he's the head of the elite of the elite. And he carried out a secret mission to Iraq to meet with the heads of the Iraqi Shia militias. After it was over, these militias began massing their forces on Iraq's borders with Syria and Jordan. They represented the Iraqi presence of an Iranian Shia support militia. And this is significant because it indicates that Iran is moving its military assets into Syria, and it looks like they have designs on Jordan as well. And so they can move their military assets without actually putting their own territory at risk. Now that's interesting, because this troop movement, however unexpected it was, presented an opportunity for both Israel and Saudi Arabia to mount a response. Now, remember that Iran attacked Saudi oil facilities and destroyed half of Saudi Arabia's oil-producing capacity. Iran also poses a future threat to Israel. And when it moves its military assets into Syria and close to Israel's northern border, Israel takes this as a threat to its national security. In any case, this massing of troops on the Syrian border presented an opportunity for Saudi Arabian and Israeli response. The strange bedfellows that have become allies, the Israeli Air Force and the Saudi Air Force, launched attacks on the Iraqi Shia forces, the militias on the Iraqi-Syrian border. Retaliation 
is certainly in order. But how do you retaliate without starting a war? To be sure, when Iran sent drones and missiles to destroy Saudi Arabia's Aramco facility, this was an act of war. And Saudi Arabia had every right and even every obligation to respond in kind. But in order to do that, Saudi Arabia would have to take on Iran's nuclear capability. And that has to be a daunting deterrent. We don't know why Saudi Arabia decided not to respond immediately, but it's quite certain that the threat of an all-out war, which is what Iran has been threatening, specifically against anybody who might retaliate against that attack. And so the concern about retaliation was well-founded. So how do you retaliate without starting a war? Well, this is a good place to start. They're attacking Iranian-supporting troops without attacking Iran. Now, according to the Arab press, both Israel and Saudi Arabia are to blame for recent airstrikes which targeted pro-Iranian militias near the border between Syria and Iraq. Those attacks, according to the Arab press, resulted in a number of deaths and injuries and the destruction of weapon storage facilities and rocket launchers. But it didn't end there, because on Tuesday morning, we got reports that unidentified aircraft had also attacked the Shia militias that were massing at the Iraqi-Jordanian border. And that was also news. Now, what is groundbreaking and historic is that the Israeli Air Force and the Saudi Air Force, who never worked together before, carried out these sorties together in coordination. And that is a first and hopefully a preview of an alliance that will continue in the future by two countries that have a mutual threat and a mutual agenda that they can carry out more successfully together than they can independently. The fact that the Saudi and Israeli air forces are working together is historic and groundbreaking and may be signs of a new alliance between Israel and Saudi Arabia that may change the future of the Middle East. This is a very good sign. So for the last week, Saudi Arabia and Israel have been flying together and carrying out sorties against the Shia militias and their patrons, the Quds Force. Now, the interesting thing about all this, one of the interesting things, is that Israel's affairs are in a bit of a mess. If you recall, Israel just had an election, the second in a cycle of unsuccessful elections. The results were abysmal because in both elections, there was no clear winner. In the first election, the prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu, was unable to put together a government. If you recall, Israel has a system where you don't vote for the candidate, you vote for the party. And in this past election, there were 32 parties. So nobody gets a majority, ever. 
what they do get is one party hopefully gets a plurality and then can put together a coalition which will make up more than 50% of the votes and will allow that party, the lead party, to create a government. Now, the problem with the last election was that it was even closer than the first election. The two major parties had almost an equal number of votes. So what's happening in Israel is very, very interesting because the first two parties are Israeli parties and the third party is already a coalition of Arab and left-wing parties, but mostly Arab parties. Yes, I said Arab parties. Israel is a democracy and every citizen of Israel, regardless of their religion or their ethnic background, Every citizen in Israel can vote, and the Arabs have their own political parties. Now, in this last election, the joint list created a coalition that made it the third largest list in the election. The first two largest Israeli parties shared positions one and two because they were so close. But the third party, in terms of its size, was the joint list the Arab party. This creates a major problem. The joint list offered to come together with the left-wing party to form a new coalition. And here's the problem. Israel was founded as a Jewish state, just the way that Jordan and Egypt and Iran are Muslim states. Israel is a Jewish state. And if one of the ruling parties is a Muslim party and in a coalition government holds a disproportionate balance of power, that creates a problem. Not only that they participate in the highest level of decision-making, but they also are given positions in the cabinet. They may have significantly powerful positions that would give them undue power over issues which are Jewish issues. That is certainly not going to be acceptable to the vast majority of the Israeli people. So now Israel is faced with the possibility of forming a government with a largely Arab party. Israelis are not happy with that. Understand that Israel is a democracy, and if you're an Israeli citizen, no matter what your religion or what your ethnic background, you get a vote. But in Israel, Jews represent 85% of the population. Muslims represent only 14%. So you see that if Muslims were to control a substantial part of the government, that would be a disproportionate amount of control given to Muslims in a Jewish country. And since this country is intended to be a Jewish country, this proposed coalition is going to be unacceptable to the vast majority of Israelis. So a solution has to be found that will maintain the Jewish character of the Jewish state, even while maintaining the democratic character of the nation. How do they solve this? The way this works is that all the parties who won seats in this election go to the president of the country, not the prime minister, but the president, 
who makes a decision about which party will be chosen to put together a coalition. But in this case, the parties are so close in the election results, practically even with barely daylight between them, that the president has come up with an idea that there will be a coalition made up of the two largest parties and that there will be power sharing between them throughout their tenure. And he has even asked the two leading parties, the Likud, which is a right-wing party, and the Blue and White, which is a centrist to left-wing party, to decide who will be the first prime minister and who will be the second prime minister in a power-sharing arrangement. Now, this has been done before in Israel, and uh, there's no reason why it can't be done again. In the interest of the future of Israel, it seems to me like the only solution that is going to work. And then Israel's future may be in great jeopardy. Now, no country is going to willingly commit suicide. This is not to say that the joint list will lose power, only that it will maintain power in proportion to the population and to the number of votes that they actually got. And that's where we find ourselves now. Sometime this week, we should hopefully have an answer. So let's go back to the first story that we talked about. The joint aerial attacks by the Israeli and the Saudi Arabian Air Forces against Iranian and Iraqi Shia fighters. And the question that I'm raising is, how can Israel carry on such complicated activities on the Syrian-Iraq border with a new alliance with Saudi Arabia when they don't have a new government? And that doesn't take into account the threats that are facing them from Hamas in Gaza, in the south of Israel, with their weekly riots on the Gaza-Israel border and their unpredictable rocket and missile attacks against Israeli population centers, or the threat that is coming from the north, from Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria, supported, of course, by Iran. Israel's defense situation is under great threat even as I report this to you. So how do they manage to survive? How do they manage to keep up their defensive posture against all of these threats when their government is in such disarray? It's a good question. Well, the answer is that not unlike the United States, there are two factors that answer this question. In the first place, until a new government is formed, the old government stays in place. Bibi Netanyahu is still prime minister, and his government, what we call the cabinet, is still also in place. So that answers the first part of the question. Even when the Israeli government is in as much disarray as they are today, some things just keep going, and Israel's defense is one of those things. It just keeps operating to protect Israel no matter what. As you no doubt know, Israel has been in a state of siege 
from the day it was founded. In fact, on that day, May 14, 1948, only hours after David Ben-Gurion stood in Tel Aviv and announced the founding of the Jewish State of Israel, Egyptian planes began to bomb the brand new state. The miracle of Israel is that in spite of the fact that its neighbors have been enemies of the state since before it was a state, Israel has nevertheless grown, matured, thrived, and is today one of the leading producers of groundbreaking technologies that have changed the face of the world. Israel will survive and continue to be a leader even as it protects its borders, even as it protects its citizens and keeps them safe. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but I'll be right back with more stories of the news of the week. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. take the next few minutes or so, maybe more, to talk about the president's speech at the United Nations. It was epic, and it deserves attention. Now, I want to talk about him because he gave the most incredible speech in the General Assembly on Tuesday morning. It needs some recognition because It laid out the entire picture of America as it stands among the nations of the world. It was comprehensive, it was powerful, and it was awesome. It was delivered with quiet, with dignity, and without emotion, but it was extremely powerful. He talked about America as the most powerful nation in the world, but also as a representative of the free world. He said, quote, The future does not belong to the globalists. The future belongs to the patriots. And he began talking about America and Americans as patriots as a proud and fiercely independent people, and the importance of patriotism for freedom and peace. He said, if you want democracy, hold on to your sovereignty. If you want peace, love your nation. He said that wise leaders put the good of their own people and the good of their own country first. And he talked about America's own program for national renewal. He talked about the six million jobs that had been added to the workforce in only three years. And he talked about America's relationships with the other countries of the world. 
he talked about China. He said China was still stealing intellectual property and still manipulating currency and still keeping market barriers in place and still demanding forced technology transfers and the theft of trade secrets. And these are things he said that have to stop if America is going to have a fair trade deal with China. And then he talked about Iran. And he talked about how Iran is fueling the wars in Syria and Yemen. And about the violent, unprovoked aggression that Iran is carrying out against other nations of the world. And he spoke specifically about how Iran was mounting monstrous anti-Semitic attacks against the Jews of the world and against Israel. He said anyone can wage war, but only the most courageous can choose peace. His message was very powerful and to the point. He didn't miss many subjects. He covered almost everything, and he spoke for over 45 minutes. He said every country has the absolute right to protect its borders. And he said something else. He talked about socialism, and he said one of the most serious challenges facing free countries today is socialism. The wrecker of nations, he called it, and the destroyer of societies. He says socialism and communism are not about justice. They're not about equality. They're not about lifting up the poor. And they are certainly not about the good of the nation. But rather, socialism and communism are about only one thing, and one thing only. Power for the ruling class. And in order to achieve this power, Socialist and communist governments are willing to do anything to subjugate their own people in order to acquire and maintain that power. He referred to a permanent political class that is openly disdainful, dismissive, and defiant against the people that they are supposed to represent and support. The most important part of the president's speech was how he supported and how he defended a free society. He said that the true goal of a nation can only be pursued by those who love it, by citizens who are rooted in its history, who are nourished by its culture, committed to its values, attached to its people, and who know that the future is theirs to build or to lose. Those are pretty powerful words. The future, he said, belongs to patriots. He did not give in to the threats of China or Iran. He made it clear that for China, only a fair trade agreement on a level playing field would be acceptable to the United States. No more currency manipulation, no more market barriers on either side, no more enforced technology transfers, and no more theft of intellectual property or trade secrets. And by the way, he also mentioned Hong Kong and demanded that China honor its agreement that it signed with Great Britain 
that Hong Kong would remain autonomous, would have universal suffrage, would be able to elect their own leaders, and would be able to live in the kind of freedom that they had lived in all of their lives. This was the first time the president had really addressed this issue. Although the people of Hong Kong had been asking for his support, carrying American flags and singing the Star Spangled Banner in the streets during their demonstrations for autonomy. And I, for one, was glad to hear him do it because the people of Hong Kong are demanding no less than what we would demand for ourselves in such a situation. The president's speech contained no apologies and no appeasement. And when he was talking about Iran, he pulled no punches. He said Iran has a bloodlust that cannot be tolerated and that sanctions will be added for as long as Iran continues to try to force its power on the rest of the world and ignores the needs of its own people. The president's speech was powerful and honest and comprehensive, and he gave it without fanfare, without pomposity, and with a level of humility that we don't often see in this president. And that made it a very powerful and meaningful speech. I do believe that this speech will go down in history as one of the great speeches in our time. In this speech, the president has proven that he can be a statesman who has no fear of speaking truth to power, assuming the power that is rightfully his as president of the most powerful nation in the world. Okay, now I think it's time to lighten up a little bit. Let's go to the new segment that I introduced last week called You Just Can't Make This Stuff Up. I guess no show would be complete without some kind of reference to the notorious squad in Congress. In this case, let's talk about the person known as AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who thinks it's perfectly okay to impose huge taxes on the American people in order to support her idea of global responsibility with her, what she calls, the Green New Deal. She thinks it's okay to pay for this astronomically expensive and totally impractical and probably undoable program with the hard-earned money of ordinary people who don't earn anything like what she does and who pay their taxes as long as they're reasonable, as long as they can afford them. And by the way, her idea of rehabilitating every single building in the United States in the next 10 years in order to meet with her exacting standards for her Green New Deal It is estimated that this will cost every homeowner $100,000 within the first year. Is she kidding? My gosh, she is totally disconnected from reality. Now, in her Green New Deal, this woman wants to do away with gas-guzzling cars, 
depending on electric cars entirely. Now, she doesn't seem to understand that when you plug in your electric car, it goes to some sort of power generating station that is fueled by, guess what, fossil fuels. All right, well, she missed that one. She also wants us to stop eating hamburgers for three meals a day, as she says, and uh, so forth. Well, anyway, the point is that in order to pay for her very expensive program, which she estimates will cost at least $100 trillion and needs to be accomplished before the world disappears in 12 years, but she's okay with not paying her taxes. You got that? It seems as though Ocasio-Cortez hadn't paid a six-year-old tax bill that was left over from a failed business venture. It seems as though she had set up a company called Brook Avenue Press. She was going to be publishing books about city children. This company that she owned owed $1,877.56 in unpaid corporate taxes. And, and the company received a warrant in 2017, two months after she had announced her candidacy to run for Congress. Now, the company was dissolved in 2016, which can happen to any company. And this is a woman, by the way, who earns as a, for her annual salary as a freshman congresswoman $174,000 a year plus whatever benefits she gets. So it's interesting to know that as of May 23rd, she had not paid this, and as far as I know, she still hasn't paid it. But isn't it interesting that her double standard allows her to nonchalantly slough off this tax when she wants us to pay much higher taxes and most of us don't earn the salary that she earns. That's not all. There's more. Of course, with her, there is always more. Because a tweet just popped up in my email, and this is something that she wrote. I mean, she's addicted to Twitter, it seems, and she always engages her computer before she puts her brain in gear. Because this is what she wrote about people who were preparing for Hurricane Damien. She wrote, quote, I see people are rushing out to fill up their cars for this hurricane at the gas station. This wouldn't be an issue if they had electric cars. If the power is out for a week, how are they going to get gas? We need to start planning ahead and moving forward. Unquote. As I said, you just can't make this stuff up. Madam Congresswoman, if the power is out for a week... How in the world are you going to charge your electric car? Have you ever thought about that? Honestly, I, I think this is a woman who is so ill-informed and whose brain is so badly out of sync with the rest of the world that she needs to keep her mouth shut until she knows what she's talking about. And honestly, that doesn't happen very often. Okay, one more. You just can't make this stuff up. You know the president has been accused of having a phone call in which he put pressure on the new president of Ukraine to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden. Well, we know that uh, 
the president has also denied this claim and is prepared to release the transcript of this call so that everybody will know what he knows. But what you can't make up is Joe Biden, because he told this story in his own words, and here's what he said at an event that was sponsored by the Council on Foreign Affairs. He said, and I quote, I remember going over to Ukraine, convincing our team that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I was supposed to announce that there was another billion dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from them that they would take action against the state prosecutor. And they didn't. So they were walking out to a press conference. I said, nah, we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. I said, call him. I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I looked at them and said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch, he got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid at the time. Unquote. Now there's the story in his own words. He was prepared to withhold a billion dollar loan guarantee from the United States government if they didn't fire the prosecutor who was investigating his son for his business activities in Ukraine. Now, here's, here's my, my problem. Here is Joe Biden, who, with his cronies, is demanding to see the transcript of the call and criticizing the president for putting pressure on the president of a foreign country to investigate him, Joe Biden. Now, it's not clear that that ever happened, but he's jumped on the bandwagon. He is accusing the president and saying his actions were criminal for doing more or less the same thing that he did in the same country not that long ago. This is what they call projection, and the Democrats use it a lot. They accuse their opposition of doing the very things that they have done themselves. If that isn't hypocrisy, I don't know what is. And if Joe Biden shouldn't be prosecuted for threatening to withhold a government loan guarantee in order to save his son from prosecution, then something is seriously wrong with our system in Washington. And the American people need to address it. So when did our country get so corrupt? So corrupt that the vice president of the United States could participate in such an action that is clearly illegal. And yet, he's getting a pass. The president, not so much. So we'll pick this up again another time about the corruption at the highest levels of government. And honestly, in the next few weeks and months, I think a lot is going to come out about it as the deep state starts to get exposed. I look forward to that. In the meantime, I'm going to take another short break. And when I come back, I'd like to talk about the constitutional issues that are depriving our president of his constitutional rights. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. 
I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Spreading the outlaw truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Well, now I would like to spend the last portion of the Friedman Report talking about our president, Donald Trump. Yes, I said our president, and I meant it. Even if you are a liberal, even if you don't like President Trump, even if you didn't vote for him, he is still president of the United States. And that makes it absolutely clear that he is our president. If you are a U.S. citizen, or if you're in the United States legally, whether or not you voted for him, whether or not you approve of him, whether or not you even like him, he is your president. He is our president. And I think it's time that we all acknowledge that. Of course, that's not going to happen because the left is so totally out of control and over the edge that they are absolutely vehemently opposed to even acknowledging that he is president or that he represents them in any way. Nevertheless, I would like to spend the next few minutes talking about our president, Donald J. Trump because he is our president, like it or not, and we need to understand a little bit more about him. Now, the Trump derangement syndrome has become such an inflammatory and out-of-control sentiment on the part of the left that we are now seeing some things that are so radical and so un-American that we need to talk about them. The latest scandal, so to speak, revolves around a phone call that the president made to the newly elected president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky. And in this phone call, which the president said was largely congratulatory to and to say how pleased he was with his election, the president is accused in an anonymous complaint by an unknown accuser, he is accused of using this conversation to put pressure on Zelensky 
to investigate possibly illegal activities of presidential candidate, former Vice President Joe Biden, and his son while they were in Ukraine. The president has denied saying any of this. And because he's accused anonymously, he cannot face his accuser. Now, this flies in the face of American jurisprudence because in America, the accused has the right under law to face his accuser. In fact, it is not just law, it's in the Constitution. The Sixth Amendment guarantees the right of the accused in any criminal matter to face his accuser. And yet, the President of the United States, who has been accused of putting pressure on a foreign leader to investigate criminal activities of someone who is competing with him in an open election, and that's illegal. The press is all over this. They were just looking for some good raw meat because when they failed to find anything actionable in the Mueller report, and then when they have so far failed to generate the necessary energy to file against the president in an impeachment hearing, they're now looking for new material, and here it was. But you know, the Trump derangement syndrome has reached such a level that the response to this by the press, by the mainstream media, who wants to get the president at all costs, it hasn't been enough. Amazingly, the most outrageous attack yet didn't come from the press at all. It came from former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, a Republican who is himself a self-declared candidate for the 2020 elections. Even though, although he declared months ago, he is one candidate that almost no one has ever heard of. So he needed to say something completely outrageous to get national attention, and so he did. He said, and I quote, talk about pressuring a foreign country to interfere with and control a U.S. election. That's not just undermining democratic institutions. That is treason. It's treason, pure and simple. And the penalty for treason under the U.S. Code is death. That is the only penalty, unquote. So Weld got his five minutes of notoriety, although he disgraced himself completely in the process. And the president responded accordingly with a statement from his communications director that read as follows, quote, The media's affliction with Trump derangement syndrome has driven them into an actual discussion of the proposed execution of the President of the United States. In such severe cases of TDS, that's Trump derangement syndrome, such as this, immediate consultation with a physician is recommended. Unquote. Look, Trump derangement syndrome has reached such a level that it is beyond the pale, truly beyond the pale. Whatever happened to innocent until proven guilty? Whatever happened to the Sixth Amendment right to face your accuser? 
What happened to our sense of fair play? What happened to our sense of good sportsmanship? Fairness, honesty, integrity. It's all down the drain. Why is that? What has happened to us that we have fallen so low that we can no longer uphold the very principles that made this country great? that made this country exceptional, that made this country a leader in this world. What has happened to us? And how do we reclaim our national soul? We need to get back to some kind of sanity, something we have talked about a lot on this show. We've talked about how we need to stop hating each other and start working together for the benefit of the United States of America and the people of America. We need to come together. We need to stop working our way toward some civil conflagration that is going to destroy this country. We need to do that, and we need to do it soon. We need to do it before... This gets so out of hand that there's no turning back. Now, those of you who have listened to this program before know that I support Donald Trump. I think he will go down in history as one of the, maybe one of the craziest, but also one of the most effective and constructive presidents that this country has ever had. Just look at what he has accomplished. In fact, what he has accomplished in the first three years of his presidency is truly remarkable. Despite the opposition of Congress, he has been able to overcome the difficulties, the roadblocks put in his way by a Democrat-controlled Congress that refuses to do anything to support any of his programs. But he's managed to accomplish an enormous amount anyway. In the first two years, when he had a Republican-controlled Congress, he was able to pass tax reform that put a little bit more money in everybody's paycheck and created millions of new jobs so that the unemployment level, particularly for Latinos and African Americans, for whom the unemployment level is lower than it has ever been, and for women for whom it is lower than it has been in decades. Millions of new jobs. He has been able to negotiate effective new trade agreements with Mexico and with Canada and with other countries as well. And he has made this country by deregulating many industries so they can function more effectively. And in the energy sector, he has made the United States the number one energy producer in the world. That is a major accomplishment. And the result of that was that when the Saudi Arabian oil-producing facilities were bombed by Iran and 50% of their oil-producing capacity was destroyed, gasoline prices in the United States did not go up appreciably. That is astonishing, but that is because 
the United States is, as I said, the number one oil-producing nation in the world. And our oil supply was not affected. Now, it's going to take Saudi Arabia months to recover from this. And in the meantime, the international oil industry is going to suffer. But we will not. And that's the doing of Donald Trump. And that brings me to this. The conversation has clearly gotten completely out of hand. So how do we move on? How do we allow a duly elected president to get on with his job without constant harassment and threats of the most drastic kinds of legal action that are so extreme that, you know what, it used to be illegal to even talk about it. You know, I'm afraid that one of the drivers of this hysteria is the competition between the Democrat candidates themselves who use inflammatory language, who denigrate the sitting president. And I must say that in all the election cycles that I have lived through, and there have been more than I care to recount, I have never heard such disgusting language coming from the mouths of the candidates for the highest office in the land. For example, potty mouth Beto O'Rourke, he may be the worst, but he certainly is not the only one to spew the vulgar language in order to make his point. And you know what? That's a shame. Because whatever their command of the English language is, it's obviously not sufficient to make their points without descending into the gutter. By reaching down to the lowest common denominator, these candidates are, first of all, they're insulting their own potential voters whom they obviously think will respond favorably to their vulgar language. And then secondly, they are admitting that their own grasp of the language is deficient. And the only way that they can communicate is by using vulgar language, really vulgar language. So that leaves us with some very poor candidates for the presidency of the United States. Candidates who do not have the self-dignity to speak proper English, to speak elevated English even. Now, you may say to me in response that our sitting president doesn't speak so eloquently. And you're right, he does not. But he doesn't swear, and he doesn't use gutter language, and his language is always on a level that is at least not vulgar. It may be rude sometimes, but it's not vulgar. And he, in that, he has a distinct advantage over the others who are competing for his place in the Oval Office. So where do we go from here? I'm not hopeful that the candidates are going to clean up their language or that the invectives against the president are going to stop or that the assaults against the president are going to stop. And that's too bad. But I am hopeful that when the Democrat candidates weed themselves out and we're left with only one candidate, that that will be a person who does not sink to the gutter 
to express his or her positions. And that would at least elevate the conversation somewhat. Now, what is likely is that the person who ultimately wins the nomination for the Democrat candidate is going to be promoting a socialist agenda. And that's a problem for America. It's a big problem. But that is something that will at least become the discussion for America. And I'm going to hope, because I am a conservative, and I do not believe that socialism is even close to being the best answer for what America needs. In fact, I believe just the opposite. It is probably one of the worst solutions for what America needs. I am going to hope that Donald Trump will be able to gather up his support from what I consider to be, what I believe to be, mainstream America, the heartland of America, the silent majority of America that wants America to stay America, not to become a socialist country which will self-destruct, but to continue to build on the foundation that our founding fathers created, the constitution that they wrote, and the rule of law that we have been building on since the late 18th century when our nation was founded. Is it too much to ask that if Donald Trump wins this election in 2020, that we can go back to our corners and accept the election and move on? I'm afraid it might be, but I do hope that the results of the election will be so clear that there can't be any doubt of the outcome. Well, this has been an interesting and hopefully thought-provoking hour that I have spent with you, that you have spent with me, and I'm hoping that it will encourage some discussion. If you want to let me know what your point of view is, if you disagree with me, that's okay too. Send me an email, ilana at americaoutloud.com. And I'll answer you and may even put your email on the air next week. But I'd like to hear what you think because we need to carry on a conversation. So if you don't agree with me or if you do agree with me, let me know what you think. Ilana at americaoutloud.com. And in the meantime, thank you for spending this hour with me. I look forward to seeing you again here next week. You've been listening to the News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.